It, uh, it happened back in 1991. A man in Philadelphia went to a flea market and he found a frame that he liked. Didn't care much for the picture. It was inside the frame because the picture was torn and faded. But, but he really liked the, flame, uh, the frame. And so he bought it. Bought it for only $2. And he thought to himself, wow, what a bargain. Well, when he got home, as he was pulling the picture out of the frame, something else tumbled onto the floor. It was a carefully folded piece of paper. It had been hidden behind the picture. So he picked it up and opened it up and discovered that it was the Declaration of Independence. It was one of the original 100 copies that had been printed way back in July of 1776. So here was this $2 picture from a flea marker, what everybody thought was just a $2 picture at a flea market, and yet it turned out to be something so much more. Because hidden inside the frame was a national treasure. Now, doesn't that remind you of a lesson that Jesus tried to teach us in Matthew chapter 25? When Jesus said, he encouraged us to reach out to the least of these. You know, the people that are invisible to everybody else around them because they have no power, no clout, no standing, no voice. Or the people that we tend to look down upon and consider to be the least. Because when we look inside the frame, we look inside their life, we see something cheap and unattractive. You know, they haven't been careful in the way they've lived their lives. I mean, whatever promise or potential was once there, they've thrown away because of their sinful lifestyles or the foolish choices they've made over the years. And so we tend to write them off and ignore them. And Jesus says, no, look inside that frame again. Take another look at that life. And if you look carefully enough, you're going to discover a treasure, a supernatural treasure. Here's a human being made in the image of God. And Jesus says, anytime you reach out to try to serve and help people like that, you're not just serving them. Jesus says, you're serving them too. You're not just touching their heart. You're touching the heart of the one who created them. And you're helping to restore the dignity that God wanted that person, that individual to have. Well, I think that same truth is being emphasized in the scripture that we're going to study today. But it's a truth that is hard for us to see because of the kind of language that is used here. Here's a passage of scripture, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Here's a passage of scripture that many of us as Christians would rather just kind of skip and ignore because it's embarrassing for us. It's in this scripture we're going to hear the Apostle Paul say, Slaves, submit to your masters. Slaves, obey your masters. And immediately we flinch. What? How could the Bible say something like that? I mean, are the atheists true when they make this accusation that the Bible promotes slavery because that's what the Bible seems to be doing in this passage of Scripture? And if the Bible's wrong about that topic, could it be wrong about other topics too? Can we really trust what this book teaches us? Do you realize every year the American Library Association will publish a list of the 10 most challenged books in America? Here are the 10 books that everybody's upset about, the 10 books that everybody's complaining about, the 10 books that everybody wants removed from the schools and the shelves of our public libraries because these are the kind of books that can have a harmful influence on our young people and children. And every year when I take a look at that list, uh, some of the books make perfect sense to me, like Fifty Shades of Grey. But you know one of the other books that frequently appears on that list year after year? The Bible. Because some people honestly think here, that here's a book that promotes a point of view on a number of different issues that most people in America don't not, do not agree with. And one of the things that troubles people is what the Bible has to say or what they think the Bible has to say about slavery. Here's how the line of reasoning goes. 
when people are against the Bible, they'll use these kind of arguments. Number one, the Bible talks about slaves, and it does. But you need to be careful to understand how it's using that terminology. We'll come back to that in a second. Secondly, the Old Testament seems to give no objection to having slaves. That's not true. That's twisting the facts. We'll come back to that in a moment. You come to the New Testament, it doesn't seem to get any better. New Testament does not just come out and command the release of slaves. And then you have scriptures like the one we're going to read today where slaves are told to submit their masters. So you begin to add all of this up. You come down to number four. It seems like all the biblical texts, both Old Testament and New Testament, seem to approve of slavery. Number five, we just instinctively know that slavery is wrong. So the Bible, number six, is wrong to approve of something like this. Well, that's not a true picture of what the Bible actually teaches. I'd like to go back and challenge some of those statements. Number one, the Bible does talk about slaves. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is evid. It's translated slave. In the New Testament, in our scripture today, it's a Greek word, doulos. It's translated slave. But many times when the Bible's using that word, it's not talking about the kind of slavery we think about, where human beings are being bought and sold like a piece of property, where there's kidnapping and rape and torture and murder. The Bible is always against that kind of mistreatment of human beings. Then that second statement, when you come down to the Old Testament, Again, the Old Testament will object to the kind of slavery we think about when we hear that word slavery. But there are situations, let's, let's just be honest and upfront, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and other places like this, you're going to read uh, within the nation of Israel, among God's people, where you're going to read about one Israelite having another Israelite as a slave. But please understand the kind of experience that is being described. It is, a, it is an arrangement that was set up by God himself. And almost every single time when it's set up, it has to do with this kind of a situation. Here's a man who's bankrupt. I mean, things have not been working out well for him. He's up to his eyeballs in debt. He's tried to sell off almost everything he's got to try to pay off those debts. And he still can't pay them all off. So he is in serious trouble. So God goes to bat and he presents this man with an option. Strictly voluntary. He doesn't have to do this. But he gives this man an option where now he can use his skills as a worker. So it's, he gives this man a sense of dignity. Hey, I'm in a deep hole, but now because of the door that God is opening up for me, I've got a way to get out of this hole. And, and the way that he can get out is he now uh, puts himself in the employment of another Israelite, a friend, a neighbor, somebody he knows and trusts. And it's a mutually beneficial kind of setup where he's not only going to be able to work for the next couple of years and earn the money to pay off the rest of those debts, but as he goes to work for this other Israelite, the Israelite, this guy whose business is really booming and prospering, and, hey, I could use a worker like that. So they're really helping each other out. But every time you read about that transaction in the Old Testament, the Bible will use this Hebrew word, evid, which people translate as slave. But we're not talking about the kind of slavery we think of when we hear that word. It's really more, it's like he's signing a contract and he's really working as an employee because in this arrangement, the way God set it up, it's for a limited period of time, six years at the most. And as he goes to work for this other Israelite for six years, he has rights. If he's ever mistreated in any way, he can immediately take his boss to court and get get the proper restitution. And if he's ever physically harmed in any way, the Bible says if a single tooth is knocked out of his mouth, instantly, automatically, he's set free from all obligations. And not only that, when the six years of service come to an end, he's not to go home empty-handed. The Bible requires the man who hired him, the one that he's been working for, to make sure you stock his pantry with food, you give him some animals to work with so he can get his farm up and going again, and he provides him with other resources as well. 
You see, it's similar, what you're reading back there in the Old Testament, it's similar to what somebody does today when they join the military. Hey, for the next six years, you belong to the army. And yet, while you're serving in the army, you receive a salary. And at the end of those six years, when you walk away from that military service, you walk away with benefits for schooling and insurance and so forth. So here's an arrangement that God set up to help somebody who's in deep trouble and gives him a way, a dignified way to get out of the hole so he and his family don't starve to death, so he and his family can get back on their feet again. It's similar also in the New Testament. What we're going to read here in the book of Ephesians. Let's be honest and upfront. In the days of the Roman Empire, when the New Testament was being written, there were horrible forms of slavery. And again, the Bible always speaks out against this. Horrible forms where somebody was captured in war and still considered to be an enemy or threat, or somebody was caught committing a crime, and they were condemned to work either in the mines or to man the oars on a Roman ship out there in sea like you used to see in the old movie Ben-Hur, or they were forced to fight gladiators in the Colosseum. Deplorable, inhumane conditions, and most of the time slaves under those kind of conditions didn't live for two or three years at the most. And the Bible speaks out against it. But there was another form of slavery. It's what we call household slavery. Like you would often frequently see in the city of Ephesus, and that's why the Apostle Paul is talking about it, where the master of the household would hire somebody, bring somebody on as a slave. And after a number of years, you get to know the members of the family. They get to know you. You're, you're like family. And not only that, the master at his own expense will pay for your training and schooling. So it wasn't unusual at all in a city like Ephesus to see many slaves who would end up becoming lawyers, doctors, engineers, accountants, teachers. Where in those positions they could earn their own money, set the money aside a few years later, purchase their own freedom, and wind up in a much, much better position in life. This is why a number of people would intentionally sell themselves into that kind of slavery so they could improve their lot in life. Here's an example. In the book of Acts, in chapters 23, 24, and 25, you'll read about, read about a man by the name of Felix. He's a Roman governor, but he wasn't always. He had once been a slave. But because of who his master was, he was a slave to the mother of Caesar. So he's, he, he is now connected to somebody with royal resources. So through the years, as he works as a slave, he receives training and schooling, and, and, and he begins to earn money, and he ends up purchasing his own freedom. And because now the connections he had to Caesar's household, he begins to climb the political ladder, and he becomes a Roman governor. This is why I think the Apostle Paul, in that kind of environment, he was never ashamed to refer to himself as a doulos, a slave of Christ. Hey, you want to know why my life has changed? Look at the one that I belong to. Look at who my master is. Look at all that he has done for me. He's the ones that changed my life for the better. So you put all this in context. You come back to the book of Exodus. Yes, it's true. There was a point in time for the Jewish people when that Hebrew word evid, slave, was, it was a word they hated and despised because of the way they were tortured and mistreated there in the land of Egypt. But God set them free from that kind of captivity because human beings should not be treated like that. And that's why both Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible always speaks against that kind of human trafficking. Listen to what it says. The book of Exodus, chapter 21. I'll just give you two quick examples. Exodus 21 says, he who kidnaps or he who steals another human being and then sells them like a piece of property, that person is to be put to death. We're talking about the slave trade, abducting boys and girls, abducting men and women, forcing them to a life that they do not want to be a part of. 
that kind of human trafficking is wrong. I mean, here's God who values life more than anybody else, but he reserves the death penalty for the very worst of crimes, and this was considered to be one of the worst. Same way in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the Apostle Paul, same one who's writing this scripture. Listen to what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We note the law is not made for the righteous. It's made for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, those who practice evil, those who are slave traders. The Bible says that kind of behavior, this kind of human trafficking, it's inherently wrong. It must be condemned. It must be punished. And this is why the Apostle Paul, whenever he had the opportunity, he found somebody trapped in that kind of life. He would do everything he could to set them free. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 16? Here's Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke. They're in the city of Philippi. And, and Paul encounters this young lady, a slave girl. The Bible says her human masters are making all kinds of money from her because she's able to do some fortune telling. So Paul instantly recognizes she's not just being enslaved by human beings. She's living under the control of an evil spirit. So under the authority of King Jesus, the apostle Paul casts that demon out. And now she can't do the fortune telling anymore. And the slave masters want nothing because they can't make any money off the But the slave masters get upset and they take out their anger on Paul and Silas. They stir up a riot there in the city of Philippi. They make all kinds of false accusations and see to it that Paul and Silas are whipped and beaten with iron rods and then thrown into prison. And yet the apostle Paul is more than willing to pay that price so that he can set somebody free. So both Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible's always against that kind of human trafficking. But here's the other fascinating thing. I go back to the book of Exodus, and then I begin to read the rest of the Old Testament. And here's the Jewish people. You'd think after what they went through, that miserable experience there in the land of Egypt, that once God set them free, they would never, ever again want to use that Hebrew word, evid. Slave, oh no, let's keep the past in the past. Let's just eliminate that word from our vocabulary, that word slavery. And yet as God brings his people out to Mount Sinai so they can enter into a covenant, a new life together, I am your God, you are my people. We hear Moses and Joshua, later on King David, you hear Abraham, Elijah, and so many others referring, like a badge of honor, referring to themselves as an ephod. I am now a servant of the Lord. See, back there in Egypt, this idea of submitting was a horrible thought because of who you had to submit to. The authority of Pharaoh, somebody cruel and abusive. Here, that word submit, it was all about control. One human being controlling another human being. And nobody should live under the control of a tyrant like that. But now when they come out, God's going to lead them to the promised land. As he brings them through the desert every day, there's God taking care of them. God bringing manna, that sweet tasting manna from the sky. So they always have good food to eat. And God bringing water out of the rock. And so you watch the people responding and saying, I want God to supervise my life. I want to open my heart to his influence, to his power, his strength, because he can do things for us that nobody else can. And that's what Paul's trying to emphasize here. In Ephesians, never be shy, never be ashamed to let people know who you belong to. Jesus is my master and my Lord. Years ago, the Humane Society, uh, they put an ad in the newspaper. They want to encourage people to come by and pick up a dog, a cat, you know, get yourself a pet. So to do that, they put a picture in the newspaper. It was this picture of this lovable puppy and this really cute kitten. And above the picture, they put these words. It's who owns them that makes them special. It's who owns them that makes them important. 
That's true, isn't it? Who owns you? Some people are possessed by an addiction. They're enslaved to drugs, alcohol, pornography. And every day their master degrades them and shames them and ruins their life. Other people are owned and mastered by an ambition, a greed, a, a lust for power. You know, I, I got to be better than everybody else. I, I have to be on top. I have to be number one. Or my life doesn't count. And every day they're driven and pushed by this craving, this need, this desire. And as a result, they run over other people or they treat their friendships like a stepping stone so that they can fulfill their own selfish dreams. And they end up ruining every relationship they have. But then you become a Christian. Now you realize, I belong to Jesus. So now when that teacher, that coach just verbally berates you, you're an idiot. You'll never amount to anything. Or every day the, the boss is just beating you down with those nasty criticisms. You're not management material. You, you should never expect a promotion. I mean, normally those kind of cutting remarks would just devastate you. But not anymore. I'm a Christian. I belong to Jesus. They're not my masters. They don't define me. They don't determine the direction of my life. God does. See, now we're driven and motivated by the calling that God has placed upon our life. And what is that calling? That's what Paul's talking about here. The Apostle Paul says, no matter what kind of situation you're in, good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, here's our aim. Everything we do, we do it for Jesus. Look at this with me real quick. And don't worry, I'm close to the end of the sermon, okay? <laughs> we're, we're not going to go through this much longer, so stay with me, okay? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. The word fear here means honor. And you do it genuinely. This isn't a show. This isn't a pretense. You do it. it it's real. It's genuine with sincerity of heart because you're not just serving the earthly master. You're serving Jesus. So obey them, not just when the boss is around. You're not just doing this to try to make a good impression. No, you're doing this from a pure heart with a good attitude, with genuine care and concern. So even if the boss is not there, I'm going to give my best. Why? Because I'm serving Jesus. I'm a doulos, a slave of Christ. I want to do the will of God. How would God want me to do this job? He'd want me to do my best. So I do the will of God from the heart, which means, verse 7, serve wholeheartedly. You give it everything you've got. As if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord, even though the boss may not notice all the good things you're doing, God does. And God not only takes note of it, God responds. God will reward because you know the Lord will reward each one for whatever good. Even if it's something small, he will reward everyone for every good they do. Have you ever wondered how Jesus might flip hamburgers or pump gas? You ever wondered how Jesus might go about selling stocks or selling life insurance? Have you ever wondered how Jesus might program a computer or how he might teach a class or run a bank or manage a company? Well, you don't have to wonder about that anymore because that's exactly the way we're told to do our work. Do your work, handle your job the way Jesus would. I mean, if Jesus were on the job site with you, do you think you'd ever hear him swearing or telling a dirty joke? No. If Jesus were on the job site with you, do you think you'd ever hear him backstabbing or gossiping about other employees? No. And if Jesus were on the job site with you, how do you think he'd treat the customers, the people who want to do business with him? Can you ever imagine Jesus yelling at somebody or sneering or talking disrespectfully behind their backs? Oh, that old lady comes in the store every week. 
She's always been upset with that kitchen table that I made for her. Now she finds an excuse to come in and, and make my life miserable. I don't think you'd ever hear those kind of words come through the lips of Jesus. And they shouldn't come through our lips either. You see, you do your job, you do your work as if Jesus were doing that job so other people can see what Jesus is really like. Kathy, Kathy Chappelle tells about a day she was changing a diaper for one of her children. It's about the third time in the day this happened as a really yucky diaper. And she's feeling real sorry for herself. And she had a friend over visiting that day. And she says, look at what I'm doing. Can you imagine? I mean, I used to use these hands to play the piano. I used to play pieces of classical music. I used to use these hands to play Mozart. And now look what I'm doing. And her friend said, but Kathy, maybe right now you're changing the diaper of the next Mozart. And Kathy said, all of a sudden, I got a new perspective on things. You see, when you reach out to serve and help other people, you're not just serving them. You're serving Jesus. You're trying to bring him glory. And you're trying to serve and help those people in a way where they can see and experience his glory too. So verse 9, it says, Masters, you treat slaves the same way Paul just encouraged the slaves to treat them. You treat them with honor and respect. Don't threaten don't, don't abuse your authority, your position. Don't, don't create this harsh atmosphere. No, lead them the same way Jesus would if he was the boss on the job site. I'll finish with this. I, I've always been intrigued by this conversation that Jesus had one day with Nathaniel. You read about the last part of John chapter 1. This is the first time Nathaniel's ever met Jesus. And when he comes that day, he's kind of skeptical. Because his friend Philip, who's going to introduce Nathaniel to Jesus, his friend Philip has told Jesus comes from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's thinking, I've never heard anything good coming out of that place. I'm not sure who this Jesus is. Real skeptical. He comes to meet Jesus, and Jesus takes the lead in the conversation. Jesus says, I know you, Nathaniel. I know who you are. I know all about you. In fact, I saw you earlier today sitting underneath a fig tree. And immediately, Nathaniel is stunned and overwhelmed. And because of that simple observation that Jesus made sitting under a fig tree, Nathaniel now makes this remarkable confession of faith. Rabbi, you must be the son of God. You must be the king of Israel. And I'm thinking to myself, what prompted Nathaniel to say that? He, he nor any of the other disciples have ever seen Jesus perform a miracle. They've never heard him preach a sermon. Nathaniel has not seen Jesus cast out a demon or calm a storm. And he saw you sitting under a fig tree. Well, there are fig trees all over the land of Palestine. That was everybody's favorite place to rest. You want to take a break in the middle of the day? You sit down underneath the fig tree because of the big leaves and the wonderful shade that it provides. But now all of a sudden, Nathaniel realizes, you know, when I was sitting there today, sitting leaning against that tree, I thought I was there all alone. You know, here in the middle of the day, taking a little break, you know, wondering if anybody understands or really appreciates all the frustrations I've had to deal with on this day. And now all of a sudden, Nathaniel realizes I wasn't alone. God was there, too. At that very moment, God was reading his heart. God was listening to his thoughts. God was sympathizing with him. God wanted to share that moment with him. And Nathaniel realizes if he wanted to share that kind of moment with me, that kind of mundane moment, that means he wants to be a part of everything I do. Working, playing, cooking, uh, taking out the garbage, driving a car, visiting with friends, changing a yucky diaper. Every one of those moments is important to the Lord. Every one of those moments in life matters to him. He doesn't want us to do life by ourselves. That's what Paul's talking about here. When you do life, do it with Jesus. Do it for Jesus, 
Do it because of Jesus. Because when you live your life that way, you are going to see a glory and you are going to experience a grace like you have never known before. Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy, the honor, and the glory that is ours to know you and serve you. And God, thank you for the comfort and peace of knowing that we belong to you. No matter what kind of situation we're in, we're never there alone. You are there with us. God, you are so good to us. You are so gracious to us. And today we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.